Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Post-traumatic stress disorder is a very real condition, but at times it's a label that is overused, and so it can be misleading or confusing. Michael Leslie is a psychiatrist at the McLean Hospital and Harvard Medical School, and he is kind enough to discuss with us the real nature and scope of PTSD. Thank you, Dr. Leslie, for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a disquieting irony that the sequence of scheduling that we used to set up this interview occurred two days before the bombs went off during the Boston Marathon, and Dr. Leslie was himself not too far away from the explosions. The events in Boston and the events in Texas are really just the ones which are the most recent in our minds, but so many other have occurred. Let's begin with a definition and some history. What is post-traumatic stress disorder? Where does it come from? Post-traumatic stress disorder is an anxiety disorder which occurs following exposure to a traumatic event. And that initial traumatic event produces both a threat to a person's physical integrity and causes a person to experience intense fear or horror in the wake of it. And as a result of this event, a person can go on to develop a number of different symptoms. PTSD entered the diagnostic lexicon around 1980 and was initially put forward to explain the cluster of symptoms which were experienced by Vietnam vets who were returning from combat and experienced a great deal of difficulty in readjusting to life in the civilian setting. Subsequently, And at the same time that this diagnostic criteria was being put forward, it was found that this cluster of symptoms was also experienced by, for example, survivors of domestic terrorism, survivors of domestic violence, really people who've been through extremely frightening situations. We see so many different degrees of PTSD, different levels of impairment. Are there, in fact, such levels recognized in psychiatry? And I guess the question that people also ask, two-pointed question here, does a PTSD last forever? In terms of the degrees of PTSD, I think we certainly see a range in terms of the severity of symptoms that a person experiences. There's no clear diagnostic criteria in the diagnostic nomenclature. There are no specific gradations of severity of PTSD, which are part of the diagnosis itself. But we certainly see people who have more mild and transient symptoms that occur for a shorter period of time following a trauma. And sometimes those people don't even go on to develop PTSD. They have what we call an acute stress reaction that lasts less than 30 days. Other people will go really severe, debilitating symptoms that can actually last for many years. There's a number of factors that can come into play which can determine the severity and duration of a person's PTSD symptoms. Are those related to their personality makeups? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, absolutely. Yes, that is one factor. So one factor is how resilient is a person, and that's influenced by a number of different factors. That's influenced by a person's underlying sense of sort of confidence. That's influenced by how anxious they are as a person. It's influenced by past experience. One of the things that we notice on the inpatient unit that is part of the Dissociative Disorders and Trauma Unit at McLean is that following an event like the Boston bombing or September 11th, we see a spike in admissions. And that is typically not from people who have just been traumatized in the most recent event. It's from people who've had past 
traumatic exposure who already had PTSD and who experienced a worsening of symptoms in the wake of the subsequent event. So it, it rekindles it, perhaps. Exactly. I think one of the things that comes into people's mind, and I know after 9-11, there was a, a, a flurry of people going to New York trying to help the people that saw the, the buildings collapse or lost people or whatever. How do we intervene? How quickly should we intervene? How do we know if we're not maybe making people worse by talking to them about it too soon after the event? How does one go about planning an intervention? So I think that's actually a very important question, and it's one which I think is not fully resolved in the scientific literature. There is a fair amount of debate about the value and helpfulness of what's known as debriefing. It's a pretty standard part of military practice following a traumatic event that they will go through in kind of a step-by-step -step fashion the narrative of what happened. In the civilian world, that it's not clear to what extent that is actually helpful. I think what is pretty clearly helpful in starting very early following the event is to help people understand that people can react normally in ways that are very upsetting to very abnormal events. And that gets back to the idea of an acute stress reaction that I mentioned a little bit earlier. It would not be surprising or abnormal for someone who was, say, at the finish line at the Boston Marathon this year to experience nightmares, to experience intrusive memories during the daytime, to have a degree of hypervigilance such that they are constantly on the lookout for subsequent bombing, subsequent terrorist events, to have kind of a state of constant hyperarousal to avoid crowds. That would all fit within what I think would be expectable and normal. I think when it becomes abnormal and when, or perhaps when it becomes more severe and when there is more need for intervention is when it really begin to impact a person's functioning such that they're not able to take care of their family responsibilities, they're not able to work, they're really not able to sleep, and especially if it gets to the point that they feel like this world is so dangerous, they would rather just not be part of it anymore. At the point that someone starts feeling suicidal, it really is time for more urgent kinds of treatment. And I, I want to get to some of the treatment modalities in a minute, but you bring up a very interesting point. The person who is afraid to go out in the world after something happens, it's almost as if the event has not yet ended. The danger is still there. I was thinking of the people of the fertilizer factory in Texas. As bad as that was, mm -hmm. it blew up. It's done. But mm -hmm. all this week, as the police were looking for the, the, the bombers, it wasn't done. And what if they didn't find it? And my God, what if this went on for months and months and months? It's a whole different ongoing stress. Would you call that still acute stress or PTSD? Where would you put it? That's an interesting diagnostic question. I mean, I think in terms of making a DSM-based diagnosis, if the initial traumatic event happens on day zero and a person continues to experience those symptoms that we're talking about, the re-experiencing avoidance and hyperarousal symptoms beyond day 30, in my opinion, whether it was an ongoing event or a one-time event, I think it would be meaningful to make the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. But I think what your question gets at is when these events, sort of getting at two different kinds of trauma, this is certainly something that we see on the inpatient unit and anyone who works with a lot of traumatized patients, that there really is a difference between what we call a, quote, simple, unquote, trauma and a, quote, 
quote, complex, unquote, trauma. And I want to be clear, there's no value judgment made between those in terms of the severity or the impact they have on people. But simply a complex trauma is something that keeps going on and on and on. Whereas a simple trauma is usually a one-time or at least a very time-delineated event. And the symptoms that emerge from a more complex traumatic event tend to be a little bit different than those that emerge from a simple traumatic event and oftentimes have a more fundamental impact on a person's underlying sense of security in the world, their personality on how they are, who they function, and the treatment needs to be a little bit different. The complex PTSD, is that where we see more the avoidance and hyperarousal and nightmares perhaps? It, in so many ways, it looks like depression. With what might be called simple PTSD, we see all of the classic PTSD symptoms. So even in simple PTSD, we see re-experiencing symptoms such as nightmares, flashbacks, distress at cues that are reminiscent of the trauma. We see avoidance symptoms, so trying to avoid any thoughts or feelings that are reminiscent of the event, avoiding the actual activities or places associated with the event, what we call traumatic amnesia, and we also see the hyperarousal symptoms. So autonomic hyperactivity, difficulty falling asleep, difficulty staying asleep, startle, all that stuff. With complex PTSD, we see a slightly broader range of symptoms. I think one way to understand this is that simple PTSD, which arises from a single event, starts with a person who already has a fairly firm sense of themselves in the world. So they have a very severe anxiety disorder related to the traumatic experience. Complex PTSD actually can start to change the way a person feels about themselves and themselves in the world in a much more fundamental sense. So with complex PTSD, you start to see situations where a person might engage in chronic self-injurious behavior as a way to regulate their mood or their internal state, chronic preoccupation with suicide, dissociative symptoms, feeling of being very chronically empty, of having difficulty maintaining relationships with other people, and really a fundamental loss of faith or meaning in the world that is of an order of magnitude different than what people most often will experience following a simple, limited traumatic event. It raises the question, the soldier, supposedly these people are trained, or the police officer or the first responder in, in any emergency situation, one would think that these people were trained to deal with what they're going to see do these people have less PTSD than others, or am I being too much of a, of a generalist here? We, one would just think that they're, I'm going to use the word tougher, that's really more of an adolescent than a scientific term. Is mm -hmm. there a sense that they're tougher and so they handle this stuff better? I'm not as familiar with the literature about rates of PTSD among, say, police officers as I could be. But I know from the military data, rates of PTSD are actually pretty high among folks who are returning from Afghanistan or Iraq. When I say pretty high, I believe not necessarily a majority, but on the order of 20, 30, 40 percent have symptoms related to trauma. The idea of 
toughness is a hard one to quantify. I think there are some people who have probably less of an anxious temperament who are possessed with a potentially inborn greater sense of confidence such that the exposure to traumatic events doesn't lead to the same degree of symptomatology. But I think there are certain kinds of events that overwhelm even the most resilient person's ability to cope. And I would also say, I think in the military and in police and firefighting units as well, there's increased awareness of PTSD and really increased education of people even before they deploy into dangerous situations and then much more increased screening to try to help them readjust to life after that. So the average person doesn't have that support system that should come from the background folks and their support people. How do we determine if PTSD is real or is being exaggerated? It does happen. A lot of people fake it for secondary gain. So what process do you do as a psychiatrist to ascertain whether this is legitimate, exaggerated, attached to a secondary gain? It's it's a huge problem in people's minds. That's an interesting question. And I think part of the reason I find it interesting is that it is not something that I find as much in clinical practice as the question would imply. I think that partly reflects where I work, which is I work in a private, non-military hospital. So nobody is trying to get disability benefits based on diagnosis of PTSD. But certainly we get people where there can be some question of embellishment of symptoms or exaggeration of symptoms. I would say for the most part, I think embellishment of symptoms kind of falls as the way people think about non-neurological seizures, sometimes called psychogenic seizures. Those most commonly occur in people who also have real seizures. So usually it's not black and white. I can't remember ever seeing someone who I thought was just completely making it up. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I think in terms of embellishment, you just have to sit with someone and get a sense of how is this impacting their life? How is this impairing their functioning? How is this shaken their sense of themselves and how they are in the world? Certainly collateral information can be helpful if you have a spouse or a close friend. For me, if I can speak with an outside therapist or an outside treater, they'll often have additional data points. It gets to the fundamental question of trust in the therapy or in the treatment relationship and how much can we trust our patients to be reliable. And fundamentally, that's what it comes down to. We have to believe what our patients tell us and try to support them in order to be able to help them. It's not hard for a savvy patient to fool a clinician once, but it's pretty hard to fool savvy clinicians over an extended period of time. I haven't found in my practice that people faking symptoms has been a particularly huge issue that I'm concerned with. What I'm more concerned about is people who have symptoms who due to either the stigma of those symptoms or due to that can't get the treatment they need to reduce their suffering and improve their functioning. It's interesting because even though I was looking at the more nefarious side of things, there's the opposite where someone isn't exaggerating. They could be underplaying because they're embarrassed that they have a psychiatric condition, which you just mentioned. I have certainly seen that quite a lot. I would say a lot of people really don't want to acknowledge how much these symptoms are troubling them. And I think it's in part because they all carry a kind of implicit judgment that if they were, quote, stronger, unquote, or if they were, that they they shouldn't be having these symptoms. And the reality is there are certain events that just 
are triggering to people in certain ways, and there are treatments that can help. And if they are able to get to the point of acknowledging, gee, I'm feeling really miserable because of what happened to me, and my life is of a much lower quality than it used to be, and I'd like to change that, they can actually do a piece of work that can significantly help them. What would be a treatment? So I think what we find with PTSD as well, really with any form of mental illness for the most part, is that it's really a combination approach that yields the best results. The combination of appropriately chosen and targeted meds with appropriate psychotherapeutic strategies that lead to the quickest and most complete resolution of symptoms. There's a variety of different med strategies that we'll use. Sometimes for nightmares, we'll use a medication called Prazosin, which has the brand name Minipress. It's actually originally a blood pressure medication, but it has the effect of decreasing the arousal level in the autonomic nervous system. And the way that I explain this to patients is the body and the mind are intimately linked and some of the strategies we use are directed at decreasing the level of agitation and arousal in the brain, but that actually decreasing the level of arousal in the body can be really helpful. And that sometimes when the body is in a more quiet state at nighttime, fewer and less severe nightmares and people get a better quality of sleep. Along the same lines, we'll use clonidine sometimes, which is another blood pressure med that's actually quite similar to decrease the level of startle response, hyperarousal, and sort of subjective agitation during the daytime. There's good data supporting the effectiveness of using SSRIs to decrease some of the anxiety symptoms, but also to decrease the dysphoria that can be associated with having this chronic anxiety disorder and chronic set of symptoms. When things are more severe, and especially if someone is having a certain kind of rigid thought pattern or are having some of the symptoms we sometimes see in more complex forms of PTSD, frightening perceptual illusions, seeing shadowy figures, that kind of stuff, it's an off-label use, but a little bit of an atypical antipsychotic or even a typical like Trilophon can be helpful as well. So that's the med piece in terms of the therapy piece. There is a variety of different strategies that get employed. I think at the very beginning, shortly after a traumatic event, it's helpful to provide just basic psychoeducation and support so that people know that the symptoms that they are experiencing initially are things that are really normal responses to very abnormal events. But to know that if they lack, if they're pers- Persistent, if they're severe, that it's time to see someone about it. I think if that happens to a person such that these symptoms linger and they have a difficult time finding a way to resolve them on their own, usually we'll turn either to a variety of cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, and that can include classic, more cognitive strategies, that can include behavioral strategies like progressive muscle relaxation, cognitive attainment deep breathing, or also for people, especially who have a more complex form of PTSD, turning to dialectical behavioral therapy, which has really been shown to help people who have a variety of conditions, but including complex PTSD, get better mastery over their symptoms and improve the quality of their lives. So if some person, unfortunately and tragically, is in a situation that produces some PTSD, there are some very real treatments. They shouldn't live alone. They should get help. In our societies, there is the embarrassment factor 
that we need to get past the shame and the embarrassment and do things to get on with our life. Dr. Michael Leslie is a psychiatrist in Boston who has given us some time to talk about PTSD right after the Boston bomb. So we appreciate your willingness to join with us, sir. It is helpful information, and we hope that the people in Boston can get their lives back together as quickly as possible. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it.